Good evening, folks. Coming to you live from the 215 here in Germantown. You are listening to the award-winning InfoHub Hour with Rashida Jamu, a.k.a. Philly's Freedom John. And I'm Maleka Fruin. I live here in Germantown with my family. The InfoHub Hour is all about news and engagement in Germantown. Check out what's going on by visiting our website at germantowninfohub.org. And you can call into the radio show at 215-609-4301. Let's start the show. All of this month, we're looking at ways to center mental health and wellness in our conversations. How do we support the mental and emotional health and wellness of our community? Joining us now is Iris Bowen, a trauma-informed social worker and clinician and co-director for the IBIS team. Iris, thank you so much for taking time to join us today. Thank you for having me. You know, I was thinking that we could start with a grounding exercise. I know that you had done and directed those before in a, in a discussion that we had earlier this year with a couple different organizations on gun violence. And I would love to enter the conversation today and just show an example of how that works. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm more than happy to lead a a short grounding technique. Um, So for folks who are unfamiliar, a grounding technique is a strategy that can help manage intense emotions, help you step away from negative thoughts or even flashbacks. Um, And before we jump into it, I just think it's really important to say that not all grounding or mindfulness techniques are meant for everybody. So it's important to explore which ones feel helpful to you. And don't get discouraged if you're trying a new one and it feels like it's silly or unhelpful or even induces some anxiety. That's okay. And it's totally normal. So with that being said, I'm going to start the grounding technique. Thank you. All right. So if you're standing or sitting, I want to start by focusing on your breath. Notice each in and out breath without attempting to change your natural flow. Try to feel yourself breathing amidst whatever is going on around you, like you're in a small pocket of peace. Begin to notice the sensations present in your body, beginning with your feet and moving slowly upwards. Can you feel the pressure of your feet touching the floor? What sensations are you noticing? Is there any movement in the air around you? What's the temperature you're feeling in the room and in your body? Now begin to focus on your emotions. How are you feeling in this moment? What is the texture of the emotions that you're feeling? Listen to my voice and repeat after me in your head or aloud, whatever feels better. Just breathe, just breathe. Be present, be present, I am safe, I am safe, I am loved, I am loved. And that's the end of the grounding technique. Thank you so much, Iris. I I already can feel things shifting in my body, so I really, really do appreciate that. Absolutely. I'm glad that it was helpful for you. I was thinking that while we were grounding, what are some things that people and and families can do for their mental health, maybe on a a regular basis? Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, I think um, one reason why I chose that grounding technique is because it sort of pulls from a bunch of different ones. So talking about focusing on yourself, focusing on your breathing can be helpful in a stressful situation. Um, one of the most basic things is just focusing on your breathing. And then also affirmations. Um, I, I think I forgot to mention this, but um, different affirmations might feel more true for, for different folks. And so it's important to find something that feels true for you, feels real, um, and is calming to you, is calming to either say or to think repeatedly in your head. Um, so those things can be really helpful. I think also just communication in terms of learning how to communicate your needs and your wants, um, what forms of support can be helpful to you. Um, doing that sort of self-introspection can be really useful when you're trying to support each other. That's such a good point that you make that not all of the grounding affirmations are will work for everyone. And I actually was thinking about this just as you were talking, and I was thinking um, thinking about being trauma-informed and culturally competent. And I was, I was wondering, what does that mean for, for folks that might not know what that means? Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, being trauma-informed is, I love when people ask that question because I think um, for a lot of folks who are unfamiliar what, with what um, the specifics of a trauma-informed approach involved, it can feel really cumbersome and intimidating and like you have to go to school for five years to be able to even start to talk about being trauma-informed. Um, and I completely disagree with that perspective. I think that almost anyone can learn how to be trauma-informed or utilize a trauma-informed approach. Um, one of the things that I think is really interesting about the formal trauma-informed approach that you can find um, with SAMHSA, which is the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Association, um, is that being trauma-informed is not linear. So there's not a one, two, three, four, five, we're going to do these certain steps. It's really about being able to evaluate your environment, being able to evaluate yourself and who you're with, and adjusting as needed with kindness, with respect, um, and with cultural competency, as you said. What does that mean? Because I don't think everybody knows what that means even. Which part? The cultural competency. Competency. Yeah, I think that uh, that's that's a tough one uh, to define, I think, because it can mean so many different things. And mm-hmm. I think also because culture is hard to define. Uh, hard. It's very hard to. So there's, for example, with me, there's black culture, there's queer culture. And so it doesn't mean that one is like less valuable than the other. It's also not something that like I can be culturally competent in. For example, I don't know, this is a bad example because I'm Black, but being Black, (laughs) um, I could be culturally competent in that and not be culturally competent somewhere else. So Mm -hmm. to say when someone says that they're culturally competent, I always wonder with what, with what type of culture are you talking about? So I think it can, for me, I find it hard to define um, because I think it means different things in different contexts. Thank you for for exploring that because I was thinking uh, if people are looking for mental health services and, and mental wellness services, I want them to know what those words mean so that they can pick and choose exactly what would really be helpful to them. Mm-hmm. We, were, we were also wondering about mental health and policing in our neighborhood. And if you can imagine a perfect solution to police handling people in mental crisis, what does that look like? Um, well, for me, I think that it doesn't look like police handling people in a mental health crisis. Mm. For me. Um, I don't think that pe- uh, police should have to 
um, or be tasked with handling folks who are dealing with mental health issues or experiencing an acute mental health crisis because police are not trained to do that. Um, I also think that there's a level of uh, hostility that just bringing such an authority figure into a situation in which there's already tension, in which there's already mental health concerns going on, um, can really escalate things. And not necessarily because, you know, an officer has done something, but the idea that an officer, an authority figure has entered into the situation can become really overwhelming for folks. So for me, I would say that it, it doesn't look like police responding to mental health crises. It looks like a system in which we have the capacity to send out mental health professionals to handle mm. Situation. And I think in, in cases where things get uh, violent, as in, you know, uh, someone is being injured, um, I understand that we definitely don't want mental health professionals necessarily to be going into that situation. But I think mm -hmm. we really need to demarcate when we need to be asking for um, an authority figure like a police to a police officer to come into a situation. Because it doesn't get to that spot right away. It doesn't escalate immediately per se. I mean, sometimes it might, but it might not go exactly there. So there might be a buildup. And um, yes, I was, and I, I was just thinking, let's keep on imagining what would be if we could imagine an ideal world where our neighborhood has the services it needs for mental health and wellness, and we're not using the police in this way, what would that look like? Yeah, I think um, I can speak to Philly uh, specifically. Um, in Philly, we have the mobile emergency team, MET, um, who can go out and help uh, someone and assess someone who's having a mental health crisis. Oftentimes, however, um, what that team is tasked with is, is 302-ing a person, um, which means mm -hmm. um, requiring an involuntary commitment or an involuntary assessment um, for them to be taken to a crisis response center. Uh, in Philadelphia, the mobile emergency team could definitely be expanded. Um, as a mental health professional, it very often takes them a long time to come out, and that's not their fault. That's because we don't dedicate enough resources to that team or to those teams. Um, so I think expanding some of the programs that we already have to allow mental health professionals to become more mobile, to really engage with the community, rather than requiring that the community participate in, for example, like outpatient or inpatient treatment in order to get services. I think we should have more services available in the community where the issues are coming up. Right in the physical vicinity of it and, and being able to access it immediately. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think you know, something that we've uh, we've lost somewhat in the in the modern world is the idea is this idea of connection with with the folks around us, right? The folks, and mm. I mean, physically around us in our communities, our neighbors, our neighborhoods, right? Because it's it's just not the way that we we function really anymore as a society. We don't have tribes and things like that as as much anymore. And I think that there is value to that sort of structure. Um, I'm not suggesting that we necessarily need to take steps back, but I think that we can pull things. Um, from the ways that we have done things in the past in terms of connecting with each other, respecting each other, working in the places where we also live so that we're more invested. All those sorts of things I think are really valuable and we've lost a little bit of that in the modern world. I see that. You know, one thing that we were thinking is that the work of mental health is, is so labor intensive sometimes. You, you might have to meet people many times patients and, and just go through a whole journey. 
how how can that possibly be expanded to an entire community? Yeah, I uh, it is it is tiring. It is tiring work, I will say, but it's also very rewarding. Um, and I think you know, going back to my earlier point of, I don't think that folks need to go necessarily to school for five years to learn how to be trauma-informed or utilize trauma-informed approaches. I also don't think, um, I think it's very possible for folks who are not mental health professionals, have not gone to school for it, to be able to do um, similar types of work, right? Parallel work in terms of learning learning how to relate to each other, learning how to relate to each other, and um, learning how to hold space for each other. I think that a lot of what being a mental health professional and going to school has given me is language for things that everyday people experience all the time and don't have words for. Wow. I love that. I want to take that in and process that again. Wow. (laughs) Um, I if I ask a question. Of course, Rashid. Okay, cool. Um, so I, I hear everything that you said, and I receive that a lot. And one thing that I think about in particular is, you know, today we have these phenomena, these social phenomenons where a lot of people think that they are um, unlicensed therapists and clinicians, right? And so a lot of times we do see a lot of people misuse that language. Like one of the things that people commonly use a lot that really just kind of cracks me to my core sometimes is when they overuse the word trauma bond in such like a misguided way. Um, But I just kind of want you to just maybe just touch on that a little bit more as to why it's so important that people speak to professionals, right? And they don't just go getting advice. I mean, you can get advice about maybe where to seek, (laughs) you know, um, clinical help and things of that nature and support. But um, sometimes I think that conversations amongst people who aren't licensed may be a little bit more dangerous than people would assume sometimes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can I can definitely see see things from that perspective as well. Um, I do think I guess I want to say um, clearly that I'm not suggesting that everyone is a mental health professional. Um, I think and I and I hear I hear you saying, uh, especially with trauma bonds, I've heard that a lot recently. Um, I think that something that's important to separate out when we're talking about uh, being a mental health professional and, and folks incorporate uh, everyday folks incorporating types of this type of language into their vocabulary is that um, when I'm talking about giving language, I'm not necessarily talking about giving diagnoses. Trauma bond is not necessarily a diagnosis, but it's very close, right? Um, and so I do think that people who are not mental health professionals should not be diagnosing people um, or, or, you know, themselves necessarily. Um, mm-hmm. On the other hand, I do think that um, learning how to relate to people, learning how to express sympathy, empathy, even work towards attunement, um, which is something where you, it goes past empathy attunement. Um, it's something where you are responding to someone's um, emotional experience and you are adjusting what, how you're engaging with them based on their emotional experience. So those sorts of things, I think everyday folks can, can learn how to do. And I think, of course, that should come from a mental health professional. Um, but I think that when we're talking about, you know, folks picking up language and things like that, it's important to separate out diagnosing versus things like just learning how to relate to people, learning how to respect people, how to ask people, what sort of support do you need in this moment? What feels good to you? What doesn't? Those sorts of questions, I think, are things that not everybody um, asks initially, but those are sorts of the questions that we learn to ask in, in social work school and things like that. Thank you. Thank you for clarifying that. Yeah. It sounds almost like 
an overall emotional intelligence that people can learn and really benefit from in our neighborhood and in, in every neighborhood. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I think um, actually to, to Rashid's question uh, specifically about trauma, I think that learning about trauma and the effects of trauma is something that is, uh, I mean, it was revolutionary for me. I think it's, it's really, once you learn about it and you're educated about it, it gives you a lot more, or I'll speak for myself. It's given me a lot more patience um, with people who you know, are rude to me or are upset with me for something that doesn't really have anything to do with me. Um, because I think once you learn about the widespread effects of trauma, you start to see maybe, maybe they're going through something that I, I don't know what's going on. Um, I'm going to choose to believe that that's not about me. And I'm going to choose kindness in this moment. I'm going to choose to just be respectful or to remove myself from the situation or you know, whatever it may be. Um, and so when I'm talking about educating ourselves as well, those are the sorts of things that I'm talking about. Learning the language can also help you or help me, I'll speak for myself, helped me learn to increase my patience as well. This I think is really important. And I think we should speak more on this because I think that this is something that would be a possible solution and helpful in, in the neighborhood of Germantown just thinking about the effects of trauma because there's been so much different traumas in people's lives, especially in the last 18 months, but I know throughout, throughout the lifetimes of folks, but I just think about a lot of grief that has happened in the last 18 months. And uh, I, I would love to learn more, even from your own perspective. Yeah, um, I'm sorry. What what um, what about trauma specifically? Just thinking about how people can kind of understand where people are coming from from the effects of trauma. I gotcha. Yeah. Um, so I can definitely speak to that. So something um, something that trauma does, and also what defines something as a traumatic event, is that it literally overwhelms your brain's capacity to process information. That's part of the definition of trauma, is, is something that overwhelms your brain's ability to process it. So when folks don't have language, when, when people can't remember events in order, um, all those sorts of things can be, not necessarily are, but can be effects of trauma. And so while it can be really frustrating to try to engage with someone who's you know, they're only telling you parts of the story, or um, they seem to have sort of mood swings, irritability, things like that. Um, I always, I mean, as a clinician, I'm always wondering, could this be a response from trauma? Um, and I think just the act of asking that question for myself helps me sort of ground things and helps me remain calm. Because when you can consider a, a realm of possibility in which this is not to do with you, and this is not a reaction to you, um, it allows you a lot more uh, patience with the person. Are there any other ideas that you have for using mental health services, using the what you were talking about, a trauma-informed approach to, to possibly create, create more of a neighborhood that doesn't need police? And instead, we take care of ourselves. 
Yeah, I think I think it's definitely possible. I'm hoping that it's in the near future for us. I'm hoping that I see it in my lifetime. Um, something that I, I heard of actually at a, a local community event was uh, a person shared that they had um, sort of an informal 911 system with their friends and family, um, people who essentially had agreed that you can call them whenever um, if something is going on. Sometimes just a, a show of, of people, a group of people can be enough to sort of calm a situation down. In um, one of my previous places of employment, that was something that we used. We would yell staff assist if someone was getting escalated and everyone who was nearby, anyone who would just come, no one would take over. But people would just, just show up, say, hey, are you okay? Can we help? Sort of a thing. Or in some cases, just step back, clear spaces, move. It was in an organization, move anybody else who wasn't um, needed in the situation away from it. Um, so I think things like that can be really helpful. Um, forming our own sort of mini communities, micro communities to help support each other. I think mm. also having a plan of action for when things go down, being prepared, um, knowing again, what type of support you need in those moments, knowing what type of support the group that you are a part of needs, um, what you will do if things get violent, what you when you might have to call the police, because realistically, there are situations where we have to call the police. Um, and just knowing how you're going to handle when the police come, who might talk to them, right? If someone is in perhaps uh, a high place of privilege, maybe they can be the person who's going to be talking to the police officers, um, things like that. I think planning with the folks that you know um, is how we're really going to start to break away from having to ask the police to respond to things like mental health crises. I really see that as a tangible, those, those are really tangible ways of looking at it. And I appreciate that. Iris, is there anything else that you want to, that you want to tell us that's on your mind today about mental health and mental wellness? Um, I think that I've mostly said it. I think that, you know, it's really challenging. Um, we're all going through a lot with everything in the world that's going on. And so I just like to encourage those of us that have the capacity to be patient with others. Um, sometimes we don't have the capacity and that's also very real and valid. And sometimes we need to stand up for ourselves and that's also very real and valid. Um, but I would just encourage again, um, if you do have the capacity, if you run into someone who is having a bad day, to just be patient with them, try to be respectful. Um, I think that that can go a really long way. We've seen a lot of unnecessary violence in the streets, um, seems unprompted and things like that, people getting pushed into subways, et cetera. Um, and so I think when we're walking around in a world that can feel really scary um, and unpredictable, it's really, really important that we find support, we show up for each other, um, and yeah, I think, I think that's the main thing, if I could just add anything else. Thank you so much for joining us today, Iris Bowen. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. We're going to take a short break. And when we come back, we'll hear from Ebony Zamani.
right, so now we welcome our next guest, who is the author of the Storefront Stories, featured on the InfoHub website. She is a frequent contributor of the InfoHub and both a photographer and filmmaker. Let's welcome Ebony Zamani. Ebony, how are you? Hello, hello. I'm, I'm all right. I'm hanging in there. I've been, I've been good. I've been busy. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Good, good. So, you know, as a Germantown native, I'm just fascinated, of course, with your storefront stories. I've shared that with you. Um, it's not just me. It's the entire info hub. And I think that they're significant for spotting the ongoing changes in Germantown. So why are you interested in the storefronts? Uh, for me, uh, so I grew up in Nicetown originally, and then we moved into Germantown a little bit. But like, you know, Nicetown is very close for anybody who don't know. And um, yeah, you used to, we used to go to Shelton Avenue all the time, even before we was living in Germantown proper. Um, and yeah, I mean, that was a part of our lives. It was how we got, you know, a lot of things, food or smaller items or like, I feel like we didn't go to the, like, bigger department stores, other parts of the city until, like, my parents got vehicles, you know? It's just like, you want to be in SEPTA all day long trying to get to the Northeast to go to a store, you know? So you can just go, you know, on the strips, like Shelton Avenue, like Area Avenue, all the little mom and pop shops and get what you need, you know? And so it's like having memory of, of so much of that um, and seeing everything sort of slowly close over the years, or space not be utilized anymore, or no real revitalization just made me, like, want to reminisce a lot and talk about, like, the importance of those stores. And that's interesting, right? That's really interesting because I actually just did a walk. Historic Germantown and the Black Writers Museum put on a walk, and it was called Black Lives in Germantown this past Saturday. And we came across the C.A. Rowell building. You know, that's the one on um, German Center Shelton. And mm -hmm. so a lot of people, you know, back in that era, like the 70s, 80s, talk about how they didn't have to go down to department stores because... Philadelphia, I mean, not Philadelphia, but Germantown had their own department store. And even just like you were saying, even when I was growing up in the 90s, early 2000s, right, I almost never seen downtown. I didn't see downtown until I was about like 10. Mm -hmm. So I heavily relate to that. Um, can I ask, do you approach a Germantown storefront with emotion or with a photographer's eye? Or could it be a mixture of both? I feel like it's both for me. Um, I usually am looking to i i like um architecture a lot for some reason that's come up in my uh, work um as a photographer i was something that carrie may williams uh, made me um pay attention to she's a well-known black woman photographer she did a um a lecture at more a few years ago where she advised us to really like go back and look at our own work and see like what comes up because that's you know those are things that speak to us those are things that clearly we have an interest in and you know i came to realize that a lot of the photo photographs i've taken even of people um you know there are buildings or there are people adjacent to architecture structures so i think i, I like the idea, and I, I don't know, maybe my years dabbling in HGTV too, was like, you know, I like the idea that like somebody was be able to create this the structure with their hands and like that they put time and energy into thinking about every little piece and what it looks like. And so I, I think for me, um, it's always interesting <clears throat> to photograph um, 
you know, buildings and, and certain spaces because it tells you a lot about the times and, and just what was happening, what was popular at a certain time, things like that. But as far as like, yeah, the writing piece, it is it is an emotional thing for me because, I, like I said, it's just it's interesting to to be getting older. Not that I'm so old, but <laughs> to be getting older and to have memory of things being a certain way and then it's completely different and to have people younger than you um have no memory of those things because they were already a thing of the past by the time they might have been old enough to realize and so it's just it is it's it's like it's nostalgia a bit it's like wow this is this used to be there or this isn't there anymore or you know these people ran this store and they were such a big part of the neighborhood and or you know people's lives daily and then they're no longer there you know so so yeah absolutely that's how i feel about that um, store that's right across from, I mean, from the um, old Walgreens where the C.A. Rawells is, that building is, the one across from it is always something. And so I know that I don't remember what it is now from when I was younger because it's changed so much. Like literally within the last five years, it's been at least three different things. Right. And so, yeah, I, I have to agree. <laughs> so is there a time when you think there that it's more appropriate to use one more than the other as far as like the eye or your emotion? Um, that's a good question. I don't know. <laughs> I, was like, I was like, we're getting, we're getting a little, um, cause <laughs> I, I don't know. People don't, people usually ask, uh, as of right now, you know, I feel like a lot of times when I am asked questions about things, it's usually just like about my work sort of surface level or, you know, you start you know engaging with people from various backgrounds and it's just like oh what is it like to be a black woman doing this this that and the third it's like no, you know people don't want to get in depth about any, any right. your own pro- you know process or practice so um yeah yeah i think i think that for me um it probably just depends on what i'm working on at the time because i feel like some i've been writing since i was a very young Person. I was about to say young boy. <laughs> I was a young, it's all a young good. Person. Trust me. It's all good. They and I was like five and uh when I started writing. And um and so like I think that uh my writing can be more personal or or emotional for me a lot of times. I haven't, you know, I haven't been commissioned or, you know, hired to to write about something where it was like necessary for me to be objective in a certain way. So like a lot of times my writing is very personal or, you know, based on my own perspective or the lives of people I know. Um, And um, yeah, I haven't had to change that really. So I haven't had to really think about too much about, you know, how far I am away from subject matter. Um, I think that'll come up though, because I have a, like a feature length film script that I'm working on that was like, it's like some very personal trauma. And I think that I'm going to need that to to be able to have that space in order for the story to come out the way that it needs to. Um, but besides that, um, yeah, most often with like my photography, I am relying on like visually, what's the story? Um, what am I trying to convey? Uh, you know, am I am I relying too much on what is sort of deemed appropriate or standard um, as far as like photography or, you know, am I sort of leaning on my own sort of perspective and artistic eye? Because 
a lot of time, I think the thing about like working in any visual medium is um, having that sort of understanding and having to contend with the fact that um, all of them were made <laughs> by white men. And, you know, that gaze is considered and, 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 you know, the rules are all sort of based around that particular gaze. And so, you know, you have to sort of contend with that yourself and figure out, you know, what makes sense, you know, <laughs> um, you know, what am I looking to convey? Um, is this going to be um, something that sort of highlights, because most of the time I'm photographing or, or recording Black people. Um, that's just been me personally, um, you know, in a way that makes sense, in a way that makes Black people look good, uh, you know, in a way that, um, you know, tells our stories in a manner that's um, just, you know, that, that really just um, brings to light, you know, our lives and our experiences without there being, you know, the, the medium in of itself <laughs> originally was was only made to capture white skin. So, you know, having a having a contend with that um is is sort of an ongoing thing for me, I feel like in my in my work. Fascinating. Thank you for that. And so some people walk the neighborhood, right? And so they see these layers. What was in the place and what it is now. And so how do you see it? Uh Germantown? Yes. General or okay. Um, I, I mean, or just I think like, that would be a that would be a good question to say maybe locally and citywide. Okay, Philly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh man, I'm like that's a <laughs> so so. I, like I said, I think I think the thing that's said to me is of like even today about like um major avenues like Shelton Avenue in Germantown or um, some parts along Germantown Avenue or like 22nd Street, um, Erie Avenue, um, places like that that used to be like really bustling like hubs for neighborhoods and where, um, you know, I knew a lot of Black people just went and, you know, you just go right in the neighborhood and do what you need to do, get what you need to get and you know, you go ahead on about your day. And to see that sort of deteriorate over time, it's like, it's, I, I, we do talk a lot about like food deserts in the city, but I don't know that we talk about like, you know, the, the, the desertion of like everything else and how that impacted communities and neighborhoods, right? Mm-hmm. And it's just like, I feel like whenever I'm, because I'm still right here, I walk around Germantown all the time. I'm like, there's so much potential here, right? And it seemed like every other day they're putting up a new loft or apartment building, but nothing else. It's just like, so, you know what I mean? Like, when is the revitalization going to happen, you know? Because I'm like, if you have empty buildings that, and you have people in the city who want to start businesses, that seems like a lot of black people I know now have all, you know, they selling hair, they selling, you know, everybody doing nails or, you know, doing taxes, I got something going on. Like, why do they have to work from home or just online? Like, if we have all of these, you see what I'm saying? Because it makes a difference and it makes a difference in the environment. We talk a lot about, you know, gun violence has been a hot topic, you know, throughout the city, but it's like, 
it's so much and there's so many younger people it seemed like that's been you know getting into all of it like younger than even i remember but it's like there's nothing for them to do anymore like i feel like even when i was a teenager there was a lot to do as a teenager i mean we had teen clubs in the city for god's sake you know so it's just like they don't have anything but it's important i feel like for young people to see things like adults you know having businesses and being an active part of the community and people being able to engage and get what they need right where they are you know that makes a difference so um and and you know that i think that can be said for any part of the city and then also um just the changes downtown because like when i was younger we did go downtown but it was because um jefferson was like we all were me and my siblings were all born at jefferson hospital and then my mom always took us there for appointments so it was just the case that that, that was why we was downtown in the gallery you know of course but um yeah, it's just crazy it like i went to college in new york city and i left and was like a part of part of the reason i left was just, i just couldn't handle it anymore <laughs> about five years of like all of the the you know people on top of you all day long and it's always something going oh, on no matter what time of day it was i was just like you know what i'm from philly and i love the city right <laughs> but like i also need my room i needed to be quiet at a certain point in time and all of these things so i was like let me go here back home because i just feel like you know i can have city life the way that i want to have it because this is too much and then, like, I get back, and it's construction everywhere. And it's like, they done turned downtown in the little Manhattan. And I'm like, what is going on? You know? I'm like, I went to school. I went to, so, I went to two high schools. My first high school, I went to Parkway Center City. And that was when it was downtown on Market Street. Like, but that whole building, because it was like, the school was on one side. Our school was on one side. I think, what was it? Chad was down the street? I think Chad was down the street. And then another high school. And then like Freire was a few blocks down. And then um there were there was a bunch of like mom and pop shops again, like all around this particular um block of buildings that, that the school was on. And they whole thing is going. Like it's all it was all knocked down, it's all new buildings now. And the same thing for all of them. So it's like even downtown, because there was a time where you like parts of North, like my mom family from North Philly, so Parts of North, it's like you could just basically walk in the downtown. It was it wasn't too far from you. And you could still sort of go to certain stores and stuff like that. That again was like mom and pop shop that was like discounted or reasonably priced so you can go. Or, you know, is if you was a teenager, you know, you wanted to go to the gallery and do whatever. But, you know, and then you had even the stands and the little stores inside the gallery that you know, people could afford local uh, businesses, the artists or whatever could afford to be in there selling whatever they were selling. And it's just, that is, that I feel like that connection is completely severed. Because it's like, you go in, it's, it's like, it's a bunch of high rises. It's, uh, the stores are more expensive. All, damn near all the mom and pop shops is going. So it's just, you know what I mean? You coming into like this business, like, you know, sort of outlet high-end space now, you know? And there's no, I don't know. I, don't, I feel like it's different. And um, that sort of ease of like flow from like neighborhood into like downtown and that just being a part of the city and not like, oh, we're in Center City now type of thing. Because that was always like further up, you know, like 22nd Street and all of that. But it's like all of it's like that or it's, it's really been expanded out. 
No, absolutely. And I hear what you're saying. I think what I got from that is that it's about the value, right? It's about how much value that we're seeing in our own communities. And I've had this discussion with a few other community leaders, um, business owners as well, who kind of emphasize that same point that a lot of the reasons they bring a lot of these things to Germantown, right, is because we have to see the value in our neighborhood before other people can see it. But the thing is, other people see it. We just don't, right? And so that also contributes sometimes to that displacement of our culture. Um, and it also just seems like you have a desire to just see the community be put first when it comes to revitalization, correct? Yeah. Yep. That's, yeah. that's, that's important. That's important. Mm-hmm. And so what did you love about growing up in this neighborhood, just Philadelphia in general? What was challenging? Um, what I have always, what I loved about growing up in Philly, I feel like, and it's something that um, it's interesting talking to people from other places um, because I feel like the way that things may have gotten bad in other cities, um, maybe much earlier on. I feel like I still grew up in, in communities, but, you know, somewhat like for even as crazy as the 90s, the early olds might have been in the city and like, you know, as much craziness they happened. Like, I mean, it was still just like a way that a lot of things happened. Like, one, if you wasn't out in the, it was a time when if you wasn't out in the streets or if you wasn't out past a certain hour, where you really didn't see too much of nothing or have to worry about too much of nothing, you know? Um, and then outside of it, it was just like, yeah, like I still feel like, like I remember like going to neighbors' houses for my mom and asking to borrow things. Uh, like, I remember going to sleepovers for, you know, other girls on the block, birthday parties and stuff like that. Like, I like my grandparents um, lived not too far from us in the neighborhood. And so, you know, we would go there all the time, go to the park, the neighborhood parks to ride our bikes and stuff like that. Like, I, it's, <laughs> I don't, I'm not sure all the time what people think happened in the hood or areas that's considered the hood. But I just feel like, you know, I still feel like that was still there. You know, like I, people were still, you know, older people in the community or neighbors or whatever would still get at you. You was doing certain things or they seen you outside of your parents, you know, wilding out. Like, you know, so like, I, I feel like, I feel like that was like, but that was important for me, you know, and I think for a lot of us, um, because I, I feel like as far as like, you you still just had that experience, you know, um, and and I, that was even the case when I went to other parts of the city because, like I said, my mom family from North, um, my great grandma lived in Strawberry Mansion. She had a house in Strawberry Mansion for a long time, so it was like you know different neighborhoods you go to. Um, but I felt like it was the same way everywhere you went. Like, you know, what, like I said, people, I don't think it was too much craziness going on, especially the kids could play outside and be outside. And it's like, you don't see that, but it's understandable as to why, you know, it's so weird to me. Like when you go, when you go through most neighborhoods and places and you don't see nothing going on, Mm -hmm. like, it's like, you know, there are children (laughs) in the area, but they, nobody's outside. It's like, it's so strange to me, you know, but like, that was, I, I always, I've always loved and appreciated that I still was able to like come up in a, in a time and space like that. What was, what's challenging, I think is, is, and what's been challenging, I think is, is like, you know, the traumatic things, the things around like violence and, and abuse that definitely go on in the city. And, you know, we all know what that's like. That's going to be on the six o'clock news every night. You know, that's going to be on, you know, it, it's going to be no, no, no opportunity to, talk, to to miss, you know, the problems that we have in our in our community, um, you know, um, because somebody going to be, you know, right on it. So, 
so yeah, you know, I've definitely been impacted by those things, gun violence, you know, other types of violence and and, and abuse, unfortunately. Um, but I, I don't know. I also feel like, you know, I, I understand to a certain extent degree that like circumstance and, and a lot of other factors play into into that as well. So absolutely. Um, and so I see that you have a documentary coming soon um, featuring your favorite trash man, correct? Yes. Um, <laughs> he's one of he's one of the three people I sat down with um, for like a short documentary. It's actually going to be so I'm a part of a collective called SIFT Media 215. The acronym is um, Sisters in Film and Television, and um, it's a black and brown women's filmmakers collective and um, um, women and, and non-binary folks. And um, so we have. Yeah, we have we have like this anthology that series that's coming out um, that we did. Um, it's called COVID sixteen nineteen, and where we were sort of diving into what we were calling like the dual pandemics of of COVID and also racism and like you know black and brown people's experiences in the last year um, with all of these things. And so my particular short, so it's going to be like a series of short docs. And my my short doc, um, I sat down with uh, your favorite trash man, two other people, uh, nurse. Tony and um, Shakira King, who's a, a community organizer. Oh, I know Shakira. And, <laughs> yep. And, you know, just talk to them about their experiences, like, you know, what their work had been like, what their year had been like, um, you know, and it was really, it was really informative. It was interesting. And, and yeah, I hope people enjoy it once it's out. It's being edited right now and it's supposed to, you know, come out on WHYY sometime, I believe later this year, maybe early next year. So, so Yeah. It'll be my first time, right? Having something on the on on WHYY too, which is crazy. So, hey, <laughs> hats off, hats off. Um, was that your first documentary? No, I've I, I actually got my um, I started in documentary, which is funny. Um, ah. I I actually so when I was in high school, um, I stayed in a lot of different programs to stay focused because I was like, I need to get to college. <laughs> I was like, college is gonna be my ticket out, and I'm like, if I don't stay focused. You know, we all know. There's plenty, there's plenty for children to get into in, in the city of Brotherly. That's what we say. Yeah, yeah. so, <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, so I was like, now nah, I got to stay focused. So I just got into a lot of programs to, like, keep myself distracted and busy. And one of the programs I got into was, um, it was a documentary um, history project for youth that came out of Scribe Video Center. So shout out to Scribe, um, Scribe Video Center, West Philly. And um, they're a small, you know, hub for like documentary filmmakers in the region and have been around for about 30 or 40 years. But um, yeah, they have a program where they teach youth how to become filmmakers like, you know, you so they teach you how to make a documentary, short documentary, and they teach you everything from start to finish. And so that was one of the programs I got into. And I just really was interested in the process. Like I was like, took a liking to it. Um, and so that was my very first documentary. It was about youth in the military when I was like 16 and I, you know, I made it with other, um, you know, other people that was around my age at the time, other teenagers, it was probably like five or six of us. And, uh, you know, it was a great experience. I mean, it changed my life because I wasn't planning to do that at all. And, um, that's how I ended up sort of in this space. So, yeah. Yeah. That sounds good. I have similar, similar upbringing, um, being in like, you know, media programs all the time. And I guess, 
I definitely heavily relate to you with that. It's just because I know a lot of people always ask me how I do so much with it and like how it comes to me. And I'm like, well, it's just something I've always been doing. Like, right. And so like you, it was really my way out and it was my way to stay off the streets and out the way as well. Um, I receive it. Um, so, well, Ebony, is there anything that you just want to share with us? Um, maybe just tell us what people can expect from you. Um, yeah, so, um, yes, I'm hoping to continue working as a contributor with you, which is cool. Like, that's something I wanted to do since I was younger, which is hilarious, because, like I said, I've been writing since I was younger, and I always wanted to do some, like, contributing to, like, some local news media or something. I think at one point I thought I was going to be a journalist, but that ain't paying out. So <laughs> It's never too and, late. It's <laughs> right. never too late. Right. And, um, but yeah, I'm going to continue making films. I have a production company called Pearls Girl Productions. Um, I also do photo video work. I have a small photography company called Easy Exposures. And as far as like very soon upcoming, I have um, a career coming out. It'll actually be in person and virtual um, for a short crime drama that I directed and produced last year called A Cold Kill which is dope. Like, it'll be my first time showing uh, work at a theater as well. So it'll be showing at the Ritz East downtown. And um, it'll premiere online as well that same day. Uh, and it'll be myself and two other, like, filmmakers. We're all going to be showing our short films. So, so yeah, I'm excited. I'm excited and nervous. Tickets on sale. <laughs> you want to support to come through or come out or watch online. Um, but, yeah, just, you know, more film, film and media work and, and photography and things coming up for me and, yeah, I'm looking forward to sharing, you know, when 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 things are, you know, completed. So fantastic. Ebony, it's really just always a pleasure to speak with you. And I hope I get to read more storefront stories sooner than later. And I really look forward to just seeing more of your work, of course. People can visit ebonyzamadi.com to interact with Ebony's work and visit GermantownInfoHub.org to read her storyfront stories. And thank you, and we'll talk to you soon. Thank you. Thank you. Well, Germantown, it's about that time. If you have a story you want to hear covered, please get in touch with us at gtown.infohub at gmail.com or text infohub to 73224 to start asking us questions. And we also encourage our neighbors to follow us on Facebook at Germantown Infohub, Instagram at gtown underscore infohub, and on Twitter at Germantown Hub. And that is our show. I am Rashida Jamu, a.k.a. Philly's Freedom John. And I'm Maleka Fruin. This has been the InfoHub Hour. Thank you to our guests for joining us today. Thank you to our neighbors for listening and engaging as always. And until next week, good night, Germantown.